Hello and welcome back to Uncini Voices. This is our fifth episode and the last to be recorded in 2020, although you'll be listening to this in 2021. Thank you for joining us. I'm Claire Bloomfield. I'm CEO of Uncini. This is the second podcast in a mini-series about pivoting through 2020 and beyond in response to the pandemic. I'm joined by John Caliphate, who is Senior Director of Innovations and Clinical Partnerships at GE Healthcare. GE have been a crucial partner for Enzimi from the outset, and John describes his work as building important stuff for patients, physicians and care teams, which I think undersells him just a tiny bit. 2021 looks like it will be another year of curveballs, so our conversation at the end of 2020 feels very relevant. You'll hear us discuss missing seeing each other face to face to create ideas and collaborate over a brew or maybe something slightly stronger. Trusting AI to take the place of a human in a busy clinic, how to choose the right tech for the patient, and thinking about the end game of how AI tech is having a positive impact and improving patient well-being. We also talk about the challenges of working with the hardworking but very stretched healthcare sector in the UK right now, which continues to be a feature as we move through 2021. We also look longer to the future, including innovating the workflow for AI in healthcare and first versus next generations of AI application and medical imaging. It's brilliant always talking to John and he always brings a global perspective to our work in the UK. And this was my chance to pick his amazing brains. Um, hi, John, and welcome to Encini Voices. It's my real pleasure to be able to talk to you today. Um, can you take a few minutes to just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your role with GE Healthcare? Sure. No, I greatly appreciate the chance to come on. Um, and see me is uh, something that I'm very passionate about and been um, engaged since the beginning of it. So it's it's really a really a a, a joy to be here. Uh, so. I'm um, responsible for digital innovation and also research within our global healthcare research outcomes and economics organization. Uh, And so what that role as a chief scientist and innovator entails largely involves um, partnering. Uh, So overseeing uh, portfolio development, clinical science questions, uh, and designing of solutions with uh, many of our our co-creation and co-development partners around the world. And a big difference of GE strategy is we're truly doing a lot of these in partnership, meaning it's not a sponsored research activity where we write a big check and so, hey, go off and do some some publication and we'll see, we'll pull this into our MR scanner or ultrasound device. Uh, Rather, we decided to take this tact about five years ago, recognizing the unique challenges, but also potential, the hopeful potential for data-driven innovations and diagnostics is that uh, to do it well, um, or at least to, to, to maybe address problems that are difficult to do otherwise, you want to be inside of a healthcare system uh, for, for many reasons, for you know, data security, privacy, access to information, but also very much access to the brains. Um, I think a, a, a philosophy I like to say when it comes to machine learning, especially in this era of, of so-called supervised machine learning, is don't you want the 
best human teachers to teach your machines, right? So, so, so therefore this idea of working, especially with, with academic oriented or anchored uh, integrated health systems, uh, working hand in hand with the clinical investigators, PIs, faculty, but then using and working with the clinical data sets, uh, staying within you know, the, the firewalls of the organizations. Uh, then likewise, using that as a, as a lily pad, if you will, for also doing the testing, real world testing, uh, refinement, and then eventually deployment of these, these uh, data-driven technologies. Um, so a lot of that is, is what I do most of the time, uh, in addition to overseeing um, some of, I would say, um, more classical evidence creation, saying, well, we want to demonstrate the value of XYZ. Uh, how do we do that? How do we publish? How do we work with partnerships? So, so you, I think in, in that intro, you've probably done more of a sales job for NCME than you've done a sales job or description of what you do day to day, but I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> sure. Um, sure. <laughs> well, it's very difficult to say it's a hard day to day. This is my, my poor kids. Uh, they still don't know what the heck I do. So, so it's, it's a lot of, um, yeah, I think a, a lot of, I, I might be going from doing data analysis or working with, uh, with uh, Kubernetes clusters to working on a paper to doing uh, this week in particular some FDA submissions, uh, talking with customers, trying to develop new partnerships. So uh, it's a very dynamic role. Uh, since the pandemic, it's it's been uh, even more interesting. I don't miss being at the airport every two days, but at the same time, it's 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 a little. Um, it's a little less energizing being able to work you know, face to face with our partners around the world, including yourselves up there in beautiful Oxford. Well, and I, I think I was going to pick up with you a little bit about the experience of the pandemic. And I've certainly felt that as well, this sense of partnership often really benefits from getting everybody together and literally physically together that we've not been able to do with everybody in quite some time now. And I can't wait until we can actually get the other side of this. So, there is some sort of intangible thing about people being physically together that helps new ideas get created that I don't think, well, at least I'm yet to find what a good virtual substitute for it is, even though okay. I've been enjoying um, being at home, sat with my cat recording this podcast. It's not quite mm -hmm. the same as uh, the collaborative working, we're all physically together, but... Right. And you talked about, and then you talked about the idea of partnerships. And obviously, as you said, you specifically and G generally have been a founding partner for NZME and have been working with us across a range of use cases, particularly, I think, with the um, not only the UK, but the global markets in mind. And I was interested in your perspectives, given you do engage in these various different spaces in the development and deployment, structuring FDA clearance down to the nitty-gritty of the development, what you think some of the important use cases of AI is going to be, particularly in the NHS, I think, and has that changed as a consequence of what we've seen with the pandemic? Sure. No, I think um, there are um, many unique benefits and, you know, subsequently challenges too, like anything that comes, I think, with, with, uh, with, with NHS. <clears throat> One of the... the 
biggest advantages is the aspect of an integrated uh, set of patient identifiers, something that seems um, seemingly trivial or maybe even especially maybe until five years ago, um, even technologists didn't necessarily appreciate the benefit of being able to understand um, the longitudinal tracking of patients. Um, and you know, then also too, I said the history of, of the UK investment in activities like the UK Biobank and, and really being at the forefront of, of understanding um, registries and, and bringing data sets, well curated data sets together for the betterment of healthcare. Um, so I, I think that one of the opportunities is taking though that basic know-how, that translation of doing that kind of aggregated um, <clears throat> biobank work, but making that also accessible at, at the front lines uh, to, to the practitioners. Um, and there are these, I think, um, very tactical needs and challenges in the NHS as it relates to the mismatch of patient needs, especially you know, for access to diagnostic screening, diagnostic imaging in general, and both the availability of, of equipment, but also somewhat more importantly, I would say or more importantly, uh, the, the availability of the trained humans, you know, radiologists, yeah. subspecialized or otherwise to interpret, you know, render an interpretation, get that information to the referring physicians. Um, <clears throat> so as it relates then to, to opening up uh, more, more capacity, I think this is where certain point applications that are AI driven can, can definitely bring, bring help. I, I think there's some, some good, good examples of that coming to fruition, both in the literature <clears throat> in terms of, of solid evidence uh, and, and confidence by, in, by, um, by clinicians and radiologists alike in, in women's imaging. Uh, the, the UK <clears throat> has this notion of two readers for every mammogram, which is, which is grown out of a, a well um, positioned and placed uh, uh, position of quality. Um, and that, that's always been a driver for UK medicine, at least from somebody looking outward in. Uh, the idea that, that, especially as something as important as a mammogram or now a tomogram, 3D so-called, um, that, that there's such subtleties that could be missed that you want to have a second human uh, to overread what the, the first radiologist did. Um, the drawback to that is when you have fewer women's imagers or radiologists to begin with, now you're further overtaxing the system. So one of the very early, I think, benefits and, and use cases, to, to, to put it in a computer science term, is, is how can you trust an algorithm, uh, a computer, to take the place of that second human? So you could have the same level of confidence and quality and reduced error rates. Um, so then you can get more scanning done. You can have more interpretations um, of, of, of a broader population. So applications like that, um, I think, especially as, as you think about population level activities, because it's something, too, that, that, uh, that centralized health systems like the NHS, I think are definitely m m better positioned and suited, especially than from the health system in my country, uh, to, to roll out uh, population level, <clears throat> public health oriented screening programs. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of great evidence and traction, for instance, in lung cancer, um, but the same issue is gonna arise. You have now more people are gonna get CT scans. Where are the, all the now thoracic radiologists to do that interpretation or to help in that, that backlog? So, so, so that, that, that's, that's another example of trying to help in that, in that capacity and the throughput of the information getting from, from the acquisition into the patient's uh, mind you know, via the, their, the, their clinician, GPs, et cetera. And that doesn't feel like necessarily the most 
sexy AI use case because you're sort of talking about just a demand supply disconnect, mm -hmm. which I think again we've it's felt more acute with the pandemic because you've created additional backlog and demand on that already compressed supply of radiologists and other expertise. Um, and I, I think if nothing, that's it's provided a really focal opportunity where you said if we'd had more AI available, would we have been in a position to work through some of that backlog and keep some of the systems working more efficiently um, compared to normal? Even when normal was with a significant backlog, that you start to at least keep it ticking mm -hmm. over, even if what we'd like to see is that the next step where you, you increase the workflow efficiency even further. Um, sure. And I've, I've, it's interesting because I feel like that's there's huge potential impact not only on that efficiency piece but then to improve early detection and intervention as a consequence but it probably doesn't get picked up through the idea of, sort of precision medicine as being a thing that's precise and yet it feels like it may be one of the big ways from a diagnostic perspective you could see some of those improvements i don't know whether you yeah exactly well well I, I think so the forward-looking um aspect of this and this is i think you know we're in CME. <clears throat> has such an advantage uh, is is you have more people getting some of these screening procedures, the imaging done. Oh, and by, and by the way, too, I was going to say this application of AI, we we tend to think about, especially medical imaging and digital pathology, you know, we tend to think of only what I jokingly call the where's Waldo problems. Okay, how does the computer find a tumor or a nodule? Uh, but there are a lot of other very important use cases, uh, especially as it relates to logistics. So optimal scheduling and throughput, how, how do you, especially in a busy clinic, um, a, a problem that's still not really well solved is, is how do you either match up uh, patients to the appropriate type of kit or gear or equipment, uh, but then also how do you flex? So, so when there is either backed up um, procedures or, 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 or uh, different patients come in out of sequence, how do you adapt and flex to that? How do you also likewise get and route the most appropriate uh, scans to the right interpreters and, and and that's where the notion of tele networks and which which the technology is there especially in imaging to, to do, do remote reading and 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 to do um, over reading at a distance even you know hundreds thousands of kilometers away um, and so but but there's a need for intelligence of, of routing those getting that information to the, the reporting radiologists and bringing that data back uh, the date in this case being the the, the report um, so 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 that that that's a an area too that that is is very ripe for innovation uh, and and is a tractable problem in a way I like to say and, and, um, both, and in both of those and it speaks to your earlier point around um, trust so you mentioned trust and particularly the idea of removing a second reader by using AI that a lot of these innovations will rely on trust not only from patients for deploying AI, but trust in the healthcare provision system mm -hmm. around, are these solutions appropriately regulated? How can we be sure that this does what we need it to? How do we engage with this? Um, and so I wanted to touch maybe a little bit on that idea of trust and I suppose how we regulate some of this in a way that right. gets that innovation deployed, but does it in a way that both the users and the recipients of the potential benefit are on board with. 
Yeah, that that's that's a huge uh, issue and a great one to dig into because it is multifaceted. It 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 is it's an area that um, I think if you look at the scholarship and the the analysis that's that's occurring uh, on many of I would call these first generation of AI applications that that have been you know, deployed, um, the evidence are really scattered that that these applications are both have utility uh, in in wide disparate health systems uh, and that the and or that they are very robust when it comes to um, day to day if you if you if, if you will um, realities of of the clinic you know meaning that um, it's it's most of the time people getting uh, scanned with the exception of screening exams is because there's probably something going on unfortunately there, you know you're probably a sick patient so those patients tend to have you know more say implants or there's you know there's 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 metal somewhere so so all of that tends to cause artifact and 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 challenges within the the acquisition itself um, so so all those factors and also to the the way that this generation of of AI are trained uh, on, on data sets that, that are sometimes not as broad as they can be, uh, leads to there being variable behavior, right? Um, and uh, the one key antidote to that is being able to more broadly test uh, bring these algorithms <clears throat> into, into clinics, you know, maybe not necessarily turn them on right away, but gather information and performance or conversely bring data sets together that are representative of the real world, but yet that you have knowledge and understanding of what those data are and what they mean, and then apply those to, to, to these algorithms and, and, and to establish that trust. Um, and then likewise to communicate it, to publish it. Um, there, there is really a dearth of, of solid publications um, that really show um, AI in the in the clinical trenches, if you will, you know, and how it's being used and tested and 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 and, and working with the human physicians, um, so 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 th that is a huge opportunity, um, and frankly, my opinion is needed for us to really get to this next level of broader adoption because of the, the issues you mentioned, Claire, about the, the trust and um, you know, are these really making an impact for me? Uh, there's there's also another issue that is is that has the potential an impact uh, on even on uh, medical education. Yeah. Um, in addition to everything else that we're at, you know, ask young physicians to learn and, and deal with um, and um, everything from, <laughs> from social welfare and psychology to physiology, anatomy. Now we're expected them to also understand some of the intricacies and nuances of, of complicated computer science and electrical engineering and <laughs> data science problems. Right. And so, so which, which of these things are the best tools to use and bring to bear in my practice? Um, it's 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 not obvious right and and the the proof is usually on the vendors right and or the academic physicians you know and 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 those who establish those truths and working too with regulators and, and making sure that these are done in a repeatable safe and efficacious uh, manner and you know and not just trying to um um, it, it's, it's a fine line, right? Speaking of somebody my whole career of trying to innovate and push the edge, if you will, of, of healthcare innovations. Um, I, I, you know, a, a key difference in what we do in our sector, though, is, is, is y y you can't just 
develop technology because it's interesting and cool, right? It, 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 you, know, you have to think about the end game. Well, how is this really going to make an impact? Uh, how is it going to improve either access? How is it going to uh, make a health economic impact to the society? How is it also going to improve you know, patient uh, well-being um, and, and also providers, right? Making providers uh, more, more able to do their jobs. And, and all of that speech again, needing to either wear different hats and try and understand those different perspectives or bringing those different perspectives together so that you create, as you said earlier, you're co-creating solutions that meet needs that you think are there, address the concerns of the likely end users, and then also provides that evidence that it will have not only clinical impact, but potentially financial or other benefits that means you can get the market to take them up and use them. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, again, I'm sort of interested because you've got that perspective from within GE of being a global entity as well. Do you think there are certain pros and cons to working with the UK in trying to support some of that different perspectives and ways of working to come up with the right solutions? Yeah, I think um, some of the same pros I think discussed before, right? So, so the ability to to uh, understand the patient's longitudinal, you know, data and information. Why is this important, right? Because I'm getting back to this notion of validating some of these algorithms. Uh, ultimately, it's it's not just about can I do this computer vision task well? You know, and what's my detection accuracy, receiver operating curve, right? But but what is this making an impact in terms of of, of impacts and outcomes to those patients? And if you can't measure, right, what's the classic Deming line, right? You, you know, you can't improve what you don't measure. <laughs> so likewise, I think for for medical AI, you really need to understand what is happening to both the patient and corpi corpuses of of patients. Um, so so that's like I said, one of the definite pros and I think to the UK's uh, commitment to to doing evidence-based um, um, science and bring that into public health you know just the whole notion of the NHS itself is, is something that is is laudable um, I think some of the difficulties you know are ones that relate to you know, capacity issues um, different um, you know, aging IT infrastructure, um, having having access to the so I mentioned this this notion of using the best human teachers to to train and teach your machines. Well, I think one of the challenges in the UK is is the the, the physicians are overloaded. You know, not just the physicians, right? All, all the healthcare workers they're overburdened and and struggle to keep up with their daily routines. Okay, now you're asking them to help. Um, you know, whether it's a global conglomerate medical tech company or a small startup to work and assist in, in, in annotating or, you know, telling uh, the computer what, you know, what, what, a, what a renal cyst is, right? So, so, you know, how am I supposed to do that and also keep my daily work um, up and then, you know, have some personal time at home and keeping that balance. So, so I, I think that that's definitely one of the challenges of, of doing, you know, this type of, of data-driven innovation uh, in, in the UK. And again, sort of coming back to the idea that you talked again about partnership at the start, do you think, so no, things like it, which bring those groupings together then help address some of that? So you're not either trying to engage with one individual clinician or one individual trust, but also look yes. at the other extreme, trying to engage with the whole of the NHS as a single body to get input, where... Where's the right point for... Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, um, 
um, I, I, I always had this vision of the movie Brazil, where right? I was like one of the Monty Pythoners, right? And what do you think about a, a unified uh, AI platform or something, right? This big monolithic building. And uh, so, so, you know, so, you know, we, I think we struggle. Um, and I'm saying this as somebody in, in, the, in working in the trenches, I, I think we struggle to do and validate um, the, the clinical utility of these first generation apps uh, for a lot of logistics problems and deployment and activities. I, you know, I, I can only imagine trying to do that with, with a central apparatus. It, it just would be oof, very difficult. You know, again, I think we can get there maybe over years. And so, so the idea of having local um, pockets of, of, of scale, right. Cause it, cause it's, it's not necessarily beneficial to do all your work, just definitely not in one trust or in one hospital, because especially a lot of these, these first generation AIs for diagnostics are again really built upon the data sets that are given to them. So, so if you only have data that are representative of, of one geographic area, depending on what you're doing, the task you're trying to train the computer, you're going to get very biased, you're going to get very... Um, localized behavior in that data. So, so, so you need to have representative, and as I mentioned before, this is an idea of real world data as well, not, not cherry picking as we say, because there are lots and lots of publications where you see in the machine learning and in, 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 in medicine um, uh, where, where the exclusion criteria for data that are brought in both for training and testing are so severe that you wonder, well, how is this really going to work in, in, in reality? So, so this notion of, of having something, it's a Goldilocks, right? Not too big, not too small. Uh, and so, you know, an AI center of excellence where, where, again, you're able to bring heterogeneous data sets together, uh, apply. So I think anybody that, that is, is even dip their toe a little bit into, into the deep learning, machine learning, take your pick of words, uh, understands the, the, the huge challenge of, of, of cleaning data, of understanding what the data are, putting them in a consistent format and way that the computers can ingest them. Um, that is, you know, you can't over um, look that as such a huge inhibitor for innovation in this area. So, so, so the value proposition of having a process, having world-class informaticists who that understand a lot of the vagaries of, of healthcare language and, and terminology and the way that these data sets themselves are built. Uh, there's, you know, so, so, so you need this weird combination of medical physics, um, not know-how, um, you know, computer science, large-scale IT network understanding. You need, you know, engineering know-how for doing computational um, innovation and then then the clinician and radiologist and 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 operational folks right to understand okay well what are the use cases how he ties together so so trying to do that i think and, and at least to have have really impactful innovations trying to do that without a a uh, a safe haven of of clean good data that are yet representative of the real world and when i say clean data i, I mean clean in this sense of that they're they're easy to interpret, understand what are in them um, versus, you know, not being, you know, dirty from, from, you know, real world acquisitions. Um, so, so that, that is, uh, is, is, I think a key part of, of where, um, you know, and CME in particular has this opportunity to help uh, not only, I think, um, 
reinforce this first generation, maybe second generation. I'm making up this generational terminology, by the way, <laughs> of, of these AI applications uh, of meaning that we're focusing in computer vision areas, trying to look at, you know, different, uh, either acute indications like, you know, hemorrhagic stroke or, or a collapsed lung. Um, <clears throat> You know, so, so understanding where the boundaries of performance of these, but um, I think circling way back to one of the first questions, I, I, you know, what I, th I think is going to be a key driver and uptake of, of these really data-driven technologies is when you start overwhelming a human with too much information, with, with data streams that our brains are just not able or well positioned to, to synthesize. When you get to that point, you need tools, you, you, know, you need analytics to, to do that for you. Um, and what might be something that triggers that in our world? Well, if you think about the availability of, of, of you know, today it's not next generation, but it's current generation sequencing of, of us finally understanding, I think, in clinical practice, how genetic information can be used to, to influence treatment decisions, um, the availability of, of digitized pathology, histopathology, um, uh, historical information as we get better to uh, curating electronic health records and bringing historical data, even what we call geographic information system data. You know, what is information about the patient in terms of their living conditions? Is there a cluster of, of you know, say um, uh, a certain cancer in, in the zip code they're in, or it's a social determinant. Um, all that information, trying to bring that together to paint a picture of the disease state or the question that you want to get out of, of an exam. When you get to that point of trying to use all these data sets, okay, that, that's when you now really need these, these AI or, or a tool to really bring um, it in, 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 into the domain of, of, where, of where the practitioners are. Uh, and, and that multi-stream of information, that's where too, to develop those tools, this is where you need to have uh, doctors, the, the, the engineers, the, the network specialists all working together to build those algorithms uh, to understand how they work and then, and then, then to test them and, and deploy them. So what you've kind of given me there is we've got now, which is can we improve workflow, workforce efficiency and just make the existing system work better? And then what you've latterly described is then can we innovate and change the system fundamentally so that I mentioned it to Banjo in my the last podcast we recorded actually is will radiologists still be radiologists in 10 years mm -hmm. time? Because actually does their role start to look like they are multimodal diagnosticians? Right, are taking right. different types of diagnostic data and integrating them to find new nuance. And are they going to be able to do that because they'll have AI to support that better integration rather than each of that expertise lying in a different person in an MDT? Can you start to coalesce that into one individual by having AI support it? Um, exactly. It's no, that, that, yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I, I think the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the um, assumed decline of radiology and radiologists is really nothing new if you look at the history of, of uh, acquisition innovation. So when CT scanners really started to become you know, used uh, or available, there was a you know, prediction, oh, well, all these radiographers, they're going to be obsoleted because the general physicians can just look at the scan yeah. and understand it when MRI came along. Uh, and I think the, the most close parallel, though, I think to, to see about machine learning impacting um, that diagnostic process was was the adoption of what we call PAX and radiology PAX, where the whole way radiologists work 
uh, their workflow, their style changed dramatically uh, from 20, 30 years ago where, where um, physicians had a question, they needed a radiological exam, they would first confer and say, hey, what kind of exam should I do? Um, and then when the, when the data were uh, collected, they would physically come together usually and, and look at the data and ask, because a radiologist training, they're, they're you know, really trained first and foremost to really understand physiology, anatomy, and function combined with understanding of physics of, of, of how you create representations of, 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 of the human. Um, so, so that capacity to really understand variants in, in anatomy and is extremely useful for, for any other physician. Uh, so when PACS came available, the radiologists became more and more separated from that clinical routine, right? into the dark rooms and almost you know, shift workers to an extent, right? So, so the digital tools bringing efficiency and productivity, yes, but now they've separated them away from the rest of the, of the, uh, of, of their colleagues and really, you know, and does, has this impacted negatively or positively I, that you could probably do a, a defill <laughs> on that topic. Um, but, but, but why I mentioned that is that digitization of medical imaging has already happened, right? Unlike in a lot of other uh, subspecialties in medicine, um, radiologists, the way they work changed whole scale. And that, that I think portends itself to when we get to this era of having too many, too many data streams, too much insight. Um, and, and it's an opportunity in a way too, to, right, to, to change, to get the radiologists. And the same is true for pathologists to be more integrative into the care team. Uh, which is again is is a huge opportunity I think too, and we see this with some of the projects and work we're doing um, in in NCME to to get towards that notion of integrated diagnostics. Um, it's 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 a vision I said that's been in the in the, in the literature and, and and a lot of us in the back offices think about this for a decade plus. But I can start seeing this becoming a reality, um, both in terms of 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 payers, uh, you know, understanding the value of this and, and the capabilities are starting to get there to actually pull all these data sets together intelligently. So one could hope that that next couple of generations of early trainees that are coming through this, I was like, you know, I still want to engage with radiology, despite the fact that we're down to about 40% workforce shortage, that actually the roles will look quite different in 10 years and there's a chance through AI for radiology to actually be a truly innovative space for how the career path works, how they're integrated in care delivery that might almost sounds like it might come full circle to where the radiologists were 20, mm -hmm. 40 years ago, but in a way that's using AI to support some of that. Yeah, exactly. And then freeing up their brains with the cognitive tasks, right? And then this is where in some way, I think we're doing the current generation of AI, we're doing it wrong in a sense. There are so many opportunities to automate the task, the routine tasks that, that radiologists, pathologists do, uh, you know, and this includes even back to scanner acquisition. Because uh, so if you spend any time with a working, you know, work a day uh, radiologist, they'll tell you like, well, I, I, I hate having to count lymph nodes. I hate having to, you know, set my desktop up. I hate having to, you know, count spine, you know, so, so, so there's so much activity that could be automated and brought to, to, to bear into that process to then allow them to cognitively think and to start thinking about, oh, well, there's other information here. And this is, you know, one of the areas of perspective, for instance, and some of other SME partners. I love is, is realizing that there, there is typically latent data that are hidden in, in a lot of um, diagnostic images. 
you know, but, but the rightful focus of a radiologist is going to be, well, hey, what was the clinical question that was asked about this patient, right? Now, they're going to look at the entire space of the patient, you know, but, but their focus is going to be on a certain you know, disease process and thinking about differential diagnoses tied to that. But there may be other biomarkers hidden within that image space. So again, if you can free up the, the radiologist's cognitive work uh, to be less about counting things or drawing circles or squigglies uh, and have them to, you know, again, play doctor, <laughs> um, that has a you know, huge impact on both the, the, the discipline, but also too on, on the value of the, of the output. So I, I think, you know, again, largely a lot of these first generation applications were done because there were availability of large public data sets, you know, for x-ray and chest. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's relatively easy, I think, to sell the acute conditions. Oh, well, hey, we can detect a, 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 brain, a brain bleed and therefore we can make this activated, right? But, but the, the reality is in medicine, I think this is true, generally speaking, globally, we're pretty good at acute episodes. It's where more, more of the errors tend to creep in and where the work-life balance is impacted is, is on these routine tasks. And, that, and you know, that's where too, I think, is if you look at the next set of innovations, right? We kind of got to get into the, the desktop almost, you know, where the eyeballs are of, of, of the physicians to improve that. That, in, in my opinion, is really what should be the productivity kind of play versus um, how do we get more you know, data through? Um, that's quite a shopping list for us to be working on in 2021 with you, and John. Um, you're going to be keeping us busy with that. <laughs> with that, I, I, so we're coming up on time really for this conversation. I might get to have you back. Have to have you back and see how much at the end of 2021 do we think any of this has shifted from these predictions of where we might head. But um, yeah. I, I, it's, we value working with you, I think, because this gives a, you, G brings a global perspective to the way NCME is considering the work we're doing and ensuring that we're tackling things that aren't just local needs. But likewise, and conversely, you, you do still meet the clinical needs and you are addressing real problems, whether they're the interesting academic ones or not, or they're the obvious low hanging fruits because of old imaging databases. It's saying, mm -hmm. can you bring those partners together? to jointly find solutions to the problems that really need fixing right. so i'm looking forward to doing more of that with you next year um we're recording this on the run up to christmas so i'm also hoping you're going to get a bit of downtime between yes. now and then um very much looking forward to that yep yep yeah, at the same time, too, I think what's also the, you know, a great story of, to have been seeing me is the work we're doing in COVID. And, and you know, I think some of the work that we're bringing from our global partners and inside of GE, I think bringing that to bear uh, to validate, you know, so, so the, you know, the pandemic, unfortunately, will be with us for a bit. And then there's going to be next waves and other changes. So, so um, yeah, I think... Uh, uh, looking forward to some downtime, but I think we'll be right back at it coming in 21. And yeah, no, I'm, I'm hoping we've got some slightly belated Christmas presents of some AI algorithms for COVID that we can actually start to share with the public off the back of some of the work, as you said, we've been doing with you and other partners around trying to support the second wave. And as you say, with the vaccines coming, um, but I don't think we'll be without COVID for a little while yet. So it's been, again, and that's, I think, a great reflection on the partner's ability to pivot to focus on where emergent needs are and make sure we can help where we think we can make an active contribution. So hopefully even between now and Christmas, we'll get some further work done. Um, but likewise, I think everybody's ready for a little bit of a break in downtime. But um, as I say, hopefully some COVID Christmas presents of some algorithms out in the public domain shortly. Ooh, stocking stuff forever. <laughs>
probably should have known it. Well, great. No, I, this has been a wonderful. Uh, thank you for the opportunity again. And what's the uh, happy holidays, I guess, is the moniker. So. Well, you, you take care. And as I say, I think we'll have to have you back for round two of this of when we, what we think the 2021 predictions actually deliver on. Excellent. Thank well, you thank you very much. Very clear. Talk to you later. What a brilliant conversation. I really love how John's brain works and how we can take a conversation to lots of fascinating different places and always love to hear his particular perspective. Um, we're hoping to have more interesting conversations and if you'd either like to take part or are there any topics you'd like to hear us discussing with our partners and collaborators, then please do let us know. We'd like to thank our funders Innovate UK for enabling all of our impactful work in this space. And also we just want to say thank you to all of you for listening and also to say we hope that you, our colleagues and our partners are having a positive start to 2021 and we look forward to working with you all. Take care.